Michael Gove and, and Nick Gibb had introduced big changes to the assessment system in particular, I was thinking uh, thinking about, you know, they put more demands on, on, on what was being taught in primaries, made it more academic with the um, in various aspects, actually, um, and, and and my point was, have you done any studies on on the likely impact on the on the individual child of doing this? You know, you might think it sounds good to be, you know, making things more academic, raising standards, but actually, you know, if if, if this is being done in a way that demotivates the child or um, you know stresses them more, you know, what's the impact? And 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 there's they've been they haven't even looked at it. You know, it, it's almost like it's enough to say we've raised standards look at us aren't we great you know I, I just i just think we should expect so much more from our politicians from our policy making process we just, and we seem to accept it that this is a, this is an acceptable way of doing things welcome to rethinking education education's critical friend Hello, you preternatural primates. Welcome to episode 32, one for every tooth. Today, I'm speaking with the prolific freelance education journalist, Warwick Mansell. Warwick is a longtime contributor to The Guardian, The Observer, and he worked for many years at The Test, The Times Education Supplement. He writes blogs for Prospect Union and the National Education Union Teacher Magazine, among others. A few years ago, he was shortlisted for the Chartered Institute of Public Relations Education Journalist of the Year. And perhaps most pertinently to this conversation, Warwick also runs a subscription-based education news website called Education Uncovered, which has the strapline digging around in the undergrowth of schools reform in England. And what a murky, tangled subterranean web it is. Education Uncovered publishes exclusive news stories, irreverent and analytical blogging, first-person reportage, long-read features and opinion, and much more. Warwick aims to hold under the microscope the endless waves of reform which have hit England's schools in recent years. He seeks to hold policymakers and those with power to account for goings-on at the ground level, and Warwick is especially keen to engage with one strand of reporting which isn't covered in any systematic way in the national education media, the way in which education reform impacts on parents, teachers and communities and the campaigns that spring up against it. I'm not on commission here, but I heartily recommend subscribing to Education Uncovered if you don't do so already. For a small monthly fee, it keeps you abreast of all the comings and goings and fascinating stories that aren't being published elsewhere. Warwick is also the author of a brilliant book about assessment in education called Education by Numbers, The Tyranny of Testing. Although it was written in 2007, it remains highly relevant today, 15 years later, and again, I cannot recommend it too highly. Here's the blurb that accompanies the book. It sounded a noble aim for new labour to prioritise education, education, education. The method they chose was a relentless attempt to raise standards by an obsession with tests and exams in every school, almost at every age level. At that time, there was testing at ages 5, 7, 11, 14, 16, 17 and 18. By using these scores to hold schools to account as never before, they planned to focus attention on each pupil's progress and thereby raise total standards. However well-intentioned, it became clear that these tests have also had damaging side effects as teachers were forced to adopt shortcuts to improve statistics 
whether or not they are in the pupil's best interests. The tests may be good for government, but they do not produce a rounded child, and standards did not rise as was hoped for. Here are some of the nice things that people wrote about Warwick's book. Mike Kent, the head of Coma Grove Primary School, wrote, It's unputdownable. I think this book should be required reading for everybody running a school. And Sue Palmer, the author of Toxic Childhood, wrote, Warwick Mansell's meticulously researched analysis of the damage wrought by hyper-accountability in the education system should be compulsory reading for all politicians. It shows how this government's obsession with tests, targets and league tables has perverted educational practice, dumbed down our public examinations, de-skilled the teaching profession and damaged the education of a generation of children. Close quote. I'm aware that I have a tendency to describe all these conversations as fascinating and it's half knowing. But on Twitter the other day, one listener, Nika, hi Nika, wrote, Your podcasts are transfixing and tantalising. So, if you want to understand the impact that the recent tsunami of school reforms have had in a number of areas, from free schools to financial irregularities, from transparency to accountability, from deregulation to the role of evidence, or indeed the lack of it in policy making, then get comfy and strap yourself in. You may even find yourself transfixed and tantalised. If you haven't yet joined the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, the 500 strong global community that's grown up around this podcast, perhaps you ought to have a word with yourself. Alternatively, you can follow the link in the show notes and sign up for free. It's a really lovely place, which is unusual for the internet, where you can meet like-minded people from all walks of life as we think through how we might change the way we educate young people in such a way that all of them leave school feeling ready to take the world by the scruff of the neck and knock it into shape. Goodness knows it needs it. Also, we are just a few days away from the January paycheck, so if you haven't yet signed up to the Rethinking Education Conference, Saturday the 17th of September in London, now is a good time to do so. We're running a 20% discount for friends of the podcast. Just enter the promo code REPOD20, that's R-E-P-O-D 20, all lowercase. Finally, these podcasts are a labour of love, but they do take rather a long time to put together. If you enjoy these conversations as much as I do, and you would like to support the Rethinking Education project, you can now become a patron should you feel so inclined. There are various benefits associated with doing so, including a searchable written and audio transcript of every episode to date, a copy of Fear is the Mind Killer, the book about learning to learn I co-authored with my amazing comrade Kate McAllister, and at the highest tier you can access a series of four 90-minute recorded workshops on metacognition, self-regulation, oracy and self-regulated learning, which you can enjoy in the privacy of your own home, whatever floats your boat, or share with colleagues as a stimulus for professional development. To support the show, please visit patreon.com forward slash repod. Again, that's R-E-P-O-D. Alternatively, if you would like to express your gratitude by buying me a coffee, which some people seem to prefer for some reason, you can do so by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. Again, there are links in the show notes. Right, that is quite enough of that. I will now hand over to my recent conversation with Warwick Mansell. I hope you enjoy the show. Warwick Mansell, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Hello. Hi. Nice <laughs> to be here. Thanks very much for having me on. 
absolute pleasure. When I started this thing, I started it about a year ago and I made a list of like a wish list of all of the people that I wanted to speak to. And yours was one of the first names that came up uh, because you are somebody who's, you know, you're talking about things that not that many other people are talking about and you do some really valuable work, I think. Um, and I'm hopeful that this that this podcast will help to bring your amazing work to wider attention uh, in some small way. Um, and so in this podcast, I often like to get to know the guests um, as well as talking about, you know, educational issues and so on. And so if you're happy to, I'd like to start by asking you about your own experience of school uh, and later education. Yeah, so um, I had quite a diverse um, experience of schooling, actually. Um, yeah, quite well, I think three or four different systems. So I started off in, so I grew up in Sussex, um, uh, started in a primary school, Church of England primary school. Um, and then um, at the age of 10, we went off to, and my dad got a job with an oil company in Cairo in Egypt. So we went off to uh, to, to Egypt for three years uh, between the ages of 10 and 13. Um, I went to an American school there, which is really interesting. Um, came back, went to uh, State Comprehensive just for a year in, uh, in Sussex. And then mum in particular was very keen that I did scholarship exams and I did... Uh, I did one for a, a, a local private school and, and, and got into that and spent my uh, the latter years of secondary in, in the independent sector. Um, and then it, and then uh, got into Wadham College, Oxford, where I uh, like quite, quite a few people in uh, the policy field. I did uh, philosophy, politics and economics uh, degree. Um, and then after that, a one year postgraduate uh, diploma in journalism, newspaper journalism at Cardiff University. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I've had quite a, an experience of different sectors of the ed education, different perspectives on it, I suppose, which um, I know, I guess I was, um, yeah, I, I always loved education. Really. I, lo I love school. Um, I was into most of my subjects, I suppose, um, reading. I did a lot of reading, a lot of maths, um, just uh, just enjoyed school, really, uh, which, you know, I, I've sort of wrote in my book, you know, obviously everybody brings a perspective to to the education debate. And I suppose my perspective is, is, is someone who's enthusiastic about education. I mean, I, I know I do need to remind myself a lot that obviously lots of people are coming at it from different perspectives, not always had such positive experiences as I feel generally I had of schooling. Um, and I need to, you know, so I, I do remind myself of that. Um, yeah, and just um, that's it, really. Okay, thank you. And so, um, what was it that that drew you to journalism? You did this journalism course straight off the back of your PPE degree. Yeah, um, I suppose it was. Um, you know, I suppose this has been a sort of theme really throughout my career. I, 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 you know, I studied politics at university. Um, was interested in politics, um, but. I was kind of interested in the in the policy side of things, the detail of of, of policy development, as opposed to, um, you know, the Westminster kind of uh, the Westminster Village kind of thing side of things. And I, I just I thought that journalism would be a good way of kind of digging into, um, in, into what's going on really at, at a detailed level. So I kind of wanted to 
you know, I wanted to explore the impact of, 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 of politicians, essentially, which was what I've continued to, to try to do. I mean, you know, when, when, you're, when you're in your early 20s, it, it, it's, it's not necessarily fully formed, these ideas uh, that you've got of, of, of where your career is going to go. But I certainly, um, you know, I, I certainly like the idea of investigating and looking into, you know, uh, what's happening with, with policy on the ground, really. Yeah, okay, thank you. And and so I'm also interested in this idea of significant learning, like, like things that often happen alongside uh, somebody's formal education. Any sort of mm. moments that have really shaped you along the way, or it could be like a book that you read or a person you met or like yeah. a chance conversation. Does anything spring to mind of sort of like sort of like moments that have really shaped you or your thinking along the way? I don't know, really. I think um, oh, there's two things. I, I suppose... Um, in terms of an, an individual, a, a teacher, my politics tutor at university, um, Dr. Robert Curry, he was um, he was very influential on, on my thing. I think, I, and other people, he he tutored actually, um, just kind of a, a very uh, irreverent approach to to politicians and and people um, who who are in power and 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 kind of encouragement to sort of ask questions all the time of, of, of people making decisions. Um, and um, uh, that's had a, that had certainly had a big influence on me. Um, also, I think possibly um, just having gone through these different systems, I think often feeling a bit of an outsider in the sense of kind of coming in to like, you know, uh, being a British person in an American school or being a state pupil going into private sector, just being a bit more, um, uh, I don't know, yeah, sort of more questioning, I suppose, being being a bit more uh, willing to be on the outside of things, which is kind of, again, how I've kind of you know, continued in my career, I suppose, just being a bit uh, sort of slightly standing outside the, 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 the mainstream, if you like, and just sort of, I don't know, trying to ask questions of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so so you um you host this website Education mm. Uncovered um yeah. which of which the strapline is digging around in the undergrowth of schools reform in England. Mm. Um could you just explain for listeners a little bit about like what this website is and why you feel that this need to dig around in the undergrowth? Yeah. Um I mean it's just really trying to uh Get underneath what's happening with policy. Um, I mean, I suppose two perspectives. One is to try and um, again sort of come up policy making not so much from the point of view of the political centre, but actually try and look at what's going on in in schools in particular, and and try and so a lot of time it's driven by you know people coming to me with stories and saying, oh, this is going on at a local level. Why don't you look into it? And then sort of and, and trying to do that and trying to um, you know, look at things in a bit of depth, if I can, and depth of the stop, not always sort of just writing one long piece, but sort of just following something over over time and just doing uh, often it's kind of story after story about particular issues, if I think it's, you know, w worthy of that. Um, uh, and the second thing is, I suppose, digging around, again, digging more deeply into, uh, which something I guess we might talk about later, is what I see as a sort of bad policy making you know policy making that, that i think you know if you look at it in depth is not really standing up to uh doesn't stand up to detailed scrutiny or, or needs detailed scrutiny anyway and just trying to to look at it and uh 
again, sort of not, not being very deferential towards policymakers, kind of like asking basic questions such as, you know, what's best for the what's best for the pupil and, and, and just trying to trying to interrogate things a bit more than than, than, than often is the case, I think. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And we, yeah, we might well get into some examples of, of, uh, of some of those policies later on. And there's some very current ones. I was looking at some stuff mm. from this week, which we might get into later. Um, and so, um, like, if, if you had to describe to an alien, say, mm. or somebody who just didn't have any idea about what was going on, like, what has happened in the last sort of 20 years or so i mean god that's a massive question but just mm. like just to give the sort of the broad strokes of the direction of travel that policy has gone in starting with new labor and then sort of since 2012 with the coalition government and then with the conservative uh, administration i mean it's quite a hard one to, to answer i think because so much has happened so i think i'd just start by saying i mean i started covering education um my local newspaper i was working on cambridge um in 97 it's just when new labor had come in i think virtually the the month that, that that it started and it was just like press release after press release and i i suppose that what's happened over the last 25 years is just constant change i think you know education has been right at the center certainly new labor it was you know had tony blair education 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 and they 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 made it very high profile which means you know, uh, they, they they felt the need to have lots and lots of education policies, you know, from the national literacy strategy, national numeracy strategy, um, you know, in terms of actually the detail of what gets taught, but also, um, you know, constant sort of structural reform as well, as we, with the academy's policy coming in in the early 2000s. Um, and then that the sense of constant change, central, centrally driven policy making has continued really. When Michael Gove came in, and uh, the, the, the Conservative led government came in in 2010, and obviously uh, education led by Michael Gove, and again, just about completely changing just about everything within you know schools policy. Um, so that, I, I, so hard to sum up everything um, that's happened. It, sort of when you look at the detail of the policy making the first thing i would say is just it's just the the, the amount of change has just been phenomenal um uh other than that i mean it, 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 i suppose it's compared to other systems that we have a quite a um a, a competitive system now with schools um you know competing for, for for prestige and you know exam results obviously central ofsted inspections um and so we have a lot of pre a lot of pressure in this system, you know. And I think you know that's it, it's got some positives in the sense that people are obviously very much kept on their toes. Children are encouraged to work hard, but also you know the pressure can bring lots of downsides as well. And I, and I think um, you know that's the downsides are often the things that I've I've sort of dug into because I think they. Um, they need at least to be investigated and considered and sort of weighed in any sort of assessment as to whether this is actually a good thing or not. So that's what I tended to report about. I mean, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And so there are a number of sort of key themes. Like I know that often, you know, the, the output that you that you produce um, is like often like individual stories, isn't it? There's like mm. this particular things happen with this yeah. particular school or this particular policy. But I'd like to sort of to try to take a bit of a step back, if you like, and to, yeah. to see if we can organize this discussion 
into sort of like general themes. Mm. And one of them, one of the ones to sort of to, to come out of this is about um, accountability or maybe transparency yeah. would be the place mm. to start. Because when you were talking about, you know, like the, the scale of the change, like the scale of the mm. change of, of um, free schools and academies um, yeah. has been massive, hasn't it? Like, mm. I, I don't know what the percentages are, but isn't it something like about 80% of secondary schools and our academies and about 40 or 50% of, of primaries, something like that. So in terms of the, the, mm. the changing the governance of, you know, more than half of yeah. the schools in the country, um, and the transparency, and maybe that's partly why you mm. sort of need to dig around because things are less, sometimes less, less mm. visible than they were in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's, as ever, it's, it's quite complex. I think, um, you know, there is a degree of transparency, you know, the, you know, you get the results that you get the exam results. There's a lot of data that's available now, which is, um, you know, probably a lot of systems, education systems around the world don't have that available. So you can, you know, when I talk about digging into the system, there's a lot I can I can look at. But there are also key bits that don't get, um, I, I think, you know, the, the, where the transparency just isn't there and it is really lacking. I mean, the, the most glaring one I, I can think of is that the whole sort of the system for deciding which organisations now get to take on which schools, you know, that through academy trusts. So you have these regional schools commissioners taking decisions um, as to, um, you know, when the school first academizes they can decide it, it certainly if it's a if it's a forced academization they decide which which trust gets the school and there's no virtually no transparency around that whatsoever you know they have held meetings on this and they were entirely in private you got tiny uh minutes it's very very brief minutes published on this and they, even that's so really only after pressure from kind of campaigners and journalists so and so that, that that's that's really lacking i think and i actually think it, it compares really badly to the the local authority system that I used to sit in on when I was first a, a, a local council journalist, um, you know, working for a local paper. Um, and at least there would be, um, you know, if there was a big decision such as a school closure, for example, you, that would be discussed openly and reported openly that, you know, that you'd go through the, the pros and cons of that. They It would be discussed and, and, you know, people would have the right to to attend those meetings if they had an interest in it, etc. It doesn't happen now. And governing bodies as well. I mean, it's shocking, really, that I think that school governing bodies, you know, whatever sector in England, they can be in private. So, you know, coming across a, a case recently where, you know, the school governing body decides to academise, um, you know, and it's sort of nine months before the, 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 the parent body is told about this. So it's it, absolutely shocking, I think. You know, we should we should have the assumption that things should be in public unless there's very, very good reasons for them not to be, I think. We, we, I mean, I think, you know, there's too much of an assumption of secrecy in this country. And so what do you think um, the what was the thinking behind mm. wanting to scale? Because first of all, what, they had a slightly different name, didn't they, under New Labour? Our academy sort of appeared under New Labour, which was when yeah. there was a school that was in dire circumstances where, you know, results were really bad, where behaviour was really bad, when it sort of felt chaotic. Mm. They sort of, they wanted to give schools a little bit more autonomy to, to be able to do whatever it needed to do, needed to be done to turn that school around. That was the sort of the initial seed of the idea, wasn't it? I mean, I think so. I mean, to be honest, I think they uh, so Labour wanted to uh, have a policy where they could be seen to be 
redoing something about secondary schools in particular, urban secondary schools, which had struggled for, for a long time and wanted some new approach. And they actually had a, a policy called Fresh Start, which was um, launched about, was, I think it's only about 10 schools in the end. And it was kind of, it was before academies, it was kind of similar to academies without the radical change of governance, really, that I think they brought in, they, it was almost like central government was appointing a head teacher uh, to turn the school around. And, and to be honest, it, it, it struggled. Um, there was, I remember one particular school where it was, it was a sort of a fly on the wall documentary and it went really badly. Um, there was a lot of bad headlines about the scheme and that was struggling in about 2000. And so they were looking for something else. And I think they essentially they looked at the, the city technology colleges policy and the, the, the conservative government and the Thatcher government of the late 80s had launched this where they brought in businesses to sponsor a, a small number of schools. Again, that was only about 15 schools. They put the, the businesses were supposed to put in a lot of money, I think, at that time. I think it was it was up to 10 million. Um, and um, you know, those schools were quite successful, but there was a very small scale initiative. So Labour was looking for something uh, to, as I say, a policy to, to, to take to struggling secondary schools and, and, and academies is the thing that um, resulted. I mean, for me, I think it's interesting that um, they chose this model of essentially giving the governance over to the incoming sponsor who could be a, business, a businessman. Um, it was always a man, I think, uh, in, in those cases, um, or, you know, a religious group sometimes. And, and the incoming uh, academy sponsor was given control, complete, essentially complete control, subject to, um, you know, scrutiny from, from, from the central DFE. Um, and that was uh, applied for 200 schools uh, were academies by the time Labour left office. Um, and I think the debatable thing is that, that that model was then taken as the sort of the, the, the blueprint for the whole, essentially for the whole, the whole system under, under the Conservatives. So you had a, a model which was quite radical and, and, you know, its defenders would say it was, it was, you needed a radical new approach for schools that had struggled to becoming sort of the default model for all schools across the country. And that's this idea of giving great power to the incoming sponsors is is something that has um you know when it's gone wrong that's been a real focus of investigations that i've had since really and i think we haven't discussed enough the fact that some of the problems with that with that model which have continued to cause difficulties right right and so this really sort of like gathered pace didn't it under when the coalition government came in and go Gove, it was incredible um, period of, of change and where he put sort of rocket boosters under what yeah. was a, a quite a, a small number mm. of schools that had been involved in these academies uh, under Labour. Yeah. Um, and he saw this as a, as a way to transform the system. What do you think was the rationale? Like, was there were there perceived or real problems with the local authority model that this academy, because it's so... so and they, and can mm. you just explain quickly, in case listeners don't know, like what's the difference between, like, like legally, uh, between a free school or an academy, and a local authority school? What was what 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 happens when a school undergoes that process of academization in terms of like how that yeah. is set up as an entity? Well, the key thing is that the uh, this, there's a contract essentially, so. Local authority schools are governed by the laws of the country. There's no, there's no sort of central contract between be, between anyone running the school and the and the school itself. When a school becomes an academy, um, a, a trust is set up to to run that school, uh, and the 
trust, there's a, there's a, a contract is signed between the people running this trust and the Secretary of State for Education, and that's a central legal document that um, called the funding agreement that, that, that governs how that uh, academy has to operate. So in theory, you could, um, you know, the Secretary of State could kind of write individual contacts for every school, and it would be and schools would be governed by that by those those agreements. I mean, in practice, you know, they, they tend to be fairly standardised now, and they 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 obviously have to follow education, the basics of education law as well. But um, yeah, it's a very different legal arrangement compared to what went before. Yeah, so so they're in di they're, uh, direct uh, control by the by the Secretary of State. In other words, yeah. that they're they're, con yeah. they're contracted to the DfE yeah. rather. Than, and so to go back to that question about local authorities, yeah. why do you think mm. Gove essentially wanted to do that to strip out that middle layer essentially of yeah. governance so that it would just go straight from school to the DfE and local authorities mm. had their budget slashed and their their. Um, the, mm. the roles and responsibilities that they were carrying out were also severely cut back. I mean, I, th I think it's entirely political, actually. I don't think there's really... I don't think Michael Gove sat down and objectively looked at the system and, and, and sort of tried to work out whether a ca local authorities were doing a good job or not. I think it's entirely that, um, you know, that... The Conservatives didn't, you know, want to take wanted to take local local authorities out of the system essentially, um, and wanted things to be run more directly from the centre. I think the civil service was probably quite keen on that as well because it increases its power. I mean, I, I I should say, you know, I need to say here, you know, although I obviously spent a lot of time scrutinising this policy and 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 kind of, and I'm very, I think, trying to be very conscious of its weaknesses. I mean, I do. I absolutely respect people working in this sector and um you know and I, and, and although I, I often criticize the policy you know I, I I respect people who who kind of come at it from a different perspective I should say that so um just want to sort of say that up front really and so let's go back to these uh these themes to have emerged from the work that you've done so we've talked a little bit about free schools and, and academies yeah um what are the what are the key ways of, first of all on this um what's what's your awareness of like the evidence for free schools and academies like is there any evidence that they perform better than non-academies oh my goodness <laughs> it's quite it's quite detailed i mean i, I suppose I think think about academies in general. I mean, free schools are a sub subclass of of, of academies. Um, I mean, for for me, that it's kind of been a stalemate in terms of evidence, in terms of performance in recent years. I mean, in the early years of the sort of the mass academization, we're kind of waiting for this evidence to come through, and it hasn't. It ha and to be fair, I mean, I don't even really think the DfE has has looked for the evidence or sought to try and. Um, you know, promote any 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 great evidence of 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 you know massive success on the academy side versus um you know non-success on the local authority side i mean i think uh, i really think it's, it's it's a bit of a stalemate which is why also i think that i you know debating actually what happens with the structures of the of, of the schools is is relevant i think because you know if, if for argument's sake the academies have been shown to be like demonstrably better than than local authority schools, you know, it probably becomes quite hard to argue about to, to look at governments and, and 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 sort of get into the detail of that. And people will just say, well, look, you know, it's a better system. But I don't think that's the reality of what's happened. I mean, um, 
I mean, the, the most striking thing for me was um, when uh, the permanent secretary of the DfE about three or four years ago was in front of MPs on the Education Select Committee and was asked what evidence the DfE has for um, forcing a school into uh, into academy status when you know when a whole community is against this idea when it says you know often you get cases where you know the schools struggle with an Ofsted inspection but then is improving and, and people think that they they want to trust the solution that's sort of the local solution and the, the, the head teacher that's in place at the time you know and then the school can be forced uh, you know the DfE has got a policy of, of kind of bringing in an external academy trust changing the, the, the structures you know as having to do that and, and, and this permanent secretary was asked well what's the evidence that this will be a better solution and, and, and he said we essentially we don't have it there isn't any there's no there's no evidence of, of what would happen if you just um, you, you didn't bring in the trust so I think it's I, I think there's very limited evidence I mean the fact that and, and the fact that Michael Gove cancelled the official evaluation so Labour had a, uh, an evaluation being done by PricewaterhouseCoopers of the Academy, Academy scheme and was publishing annual reports. Uh, Michael Gove scrapped that evaluation. So there is no official DfE evaluation of the Academy scheme, um, which, you know, again, sort of tells you that it, it, evidence has not really been that important to the, the policymakers. It's about imposing a solution which they, they favour. Yeah. I don't know if you want me to go into free schools as well, but um... yeah, please. So just to just to clarify, my understanding is a free school is basically an academy that just didn't exist before. Yeah. So an academy is a school that converts into this yeah. different like your contracts, and a free school is just one that didn't exist before. Yeah. Is that is that a fair? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're new schools. Um, so yeah, I mean, at free schools. I mean, the supporters would sort of point to. It's it's quite hard off the top of my head, but free school supporters would point to the fact that they've got, uh, I think, a higher proportion of, of schools are, have been outstanding at Ofsted, and they, they can point to good results, I think. Um, but um, I think there's a higher proportion that have done badly with Ofsted as well. And it seems to me it's quite a polarised policy. Where there've been some, there's certainly been some successes, but I've certainly seen covered some. Um, spectacular failures as well unfortunately with the free schools um and uh often the schools that have had to close um uh they're not included in the data as well so um yeah again it's 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 new it's a nuanced picture i think yeah i mean you you would expect that it would be easier to to get good results in a free school because you're starting mm. from scratch and they often start for example if it's a secondary school they only have year seven at first and then year eight the follow the you know two years the following year and so on yeah um and they're able to recruit people to a particular perspective yeah. so if you're one of these very sort of traditionalist like knowledge rich mm. schools and you can you can appoint people to that particular yeah. perspective or for example like school 21 which is you know got a very clear set of set of values that are different that are about sort of oracy and communication and collaboration and what have you you would imagine that being able to recruit teachers from the get-go to to buy into a particular um way of doing things would make it more successful yeah. than trying to turn around an existing school where there are people with very entrenched ways of doing things and it's just a lot harder yeah. to turn that around. And so so it's interesting to hear that even on the free schools front that there's not really a great deal of evidence that, that you're saying that it's quite polarised. Mm. There, there are definitely some free schools that have done amazing things. And and credit where credit's due, like the, it has allowed innovation to happen 
the, the free schools program where you know it would have been much harder for the, for schools to innovate in those ways before but obviously it's a, it's sort of a fringe thing right you can't mm. you can't just shut down all the schools and set up a whole country full of yeah. new free schools and so it's not really a solution in terms of you know like the yeah. system as a whole i also think the innovation is interesting i think it's i think the free schools maybe show up a, a potential clash between two kind of aspects of policy making so you would one is that innovation as you that you know certainly you know michael gove back in 2010 would say free schools are about that innovation about um you know getting away from too much intervention state intervention uh, allowing the professions to professionals to do things as, as they uh, they think appropriate but then you've also got so 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 free schools can do that so long as they're successful i think as long as they get those results they can they can satisfy the offset inspectors but if they don't um if they if they struggle for any reason um it, it, they, they then really struggle i mean you know uh the ethos can be changed completely if 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 the school fails an offset inspection for example then um you know the the, the provider can be changed the school can the school can can be closed and then 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 that free school can have its ethos changed completely so i mean i think um it's it, they're trying to sort of exist within a, a what is still a very sort of centralizing um performance driven um pressurized culture so yes it, it works well when you can get those results but if you if you don't um yeah it's gonna struggle yeah and and like you say there have been some spectacular um car mm. crashes and lots of i mean maybe we'll get into some of that but just to sort of just to sum up my my reading of the of the 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 research on this um is like it doesn't seem like the the at all good evidence that, like you say, you described it as a stalemate. There was a 2018 report um, out of the UCL Institute of Education that says there's no positive impact on the attainment and progress scores of pupils in multi-academy trusts compared with non-multi-academy trust schools. And likewise, with the with the Ofsted thing, 90% um, mm. of schools that stayed with their council kept their good, outs good or outstanding grades yeah. compared with 81% that became academies. That was a report by the local government association. Right. Yeah. Like, like you say, maybe maybe there's slightly more uh, good or outstanding schools in the free schools category, but that, that's a, it's a small percentage, isn't it, compared to the academies as a whole? I don't know if you know roughly, like what's the what proportion of, of academies are free schools? Oh, it'd be tiny numbers. I mean, I, I don't know how this, this is. You're talking in the hundreds. Um, it's about 600 free schools perhaps now, and then about nine, more than 9,000 academies. I mean, I can get the figures if, if you want, but um, it's, it's quite a small number. And actually on the data, I think, I think it's only in terms of outstanding schools that you get a higher proportion of free schools, but um, you also get a higher proportion which are inadequate and, and requires improvement. So I think that means the good... The good numbers are slightly lower so i mean it's um yeah and there, there are there have been a number of cases of free schools that have opened that just like literally never got any kids did they and they changed that they, they sort of they closed down without even getting off the ground and there's huge amounts of money and, mm. and effort that goes into these things yeah are you aware of, of any examples of those i mean certainly there are schools that haven't haven't started there are also schools that I think, you know, particularly where free schools have been set up with um, spare places in areas that might have spare places. So there's essentially a surplus of supplier places. And obviously the idea is that the free school, you know, can be can innovate and attract pupils 
to that school and be successful but sometimes they haven't always been able to do that and um, um, sometimes it, that can create problems for that school as well if it's undersubscribed and then it um, you know schools that aren't undersubscribed locally um, um, they don't have to they don't have to take essentially it might have to take the free school might end up having to take children that have excluded from other schools um, and it can become that can create its, its own problems I think on the ground I mean I certainly um, can think of one or two cases where they've um, yeah it certainly created lots lots of problems and then created difficulties for the schools mm. so they've become almost a, a, like a, a de facto um a school for, with, with behavior problems and not necessarily because because of anything the school was doing but because they they they, they had to take in you know those excluded children perhaps sorry that's a bit of a tangent there but um i i think there's lots of issues that perhaps aren't always um front and center of this debate yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, there are many tangential issues here, aren't there? Because there's such a sort of an interconnected web of things going on. Um, and and sort of maybe tangentially linked again is the issue of off-rolling, mm. which is something that's become, um, well, I, I mean, could you could you just explain a little bit about what off-rolling is in case people aren't aware of it and, and any patterns that you've noticed in, in how and where off-rolling happens? Um, yeah, I think off-rolling is, is probably the, the most shocking aspects of um pressure results pressures on schools I've, you know i wrote the book on um essentially on, on on the pressures on schools to improve their results in, published in 2007 education by numbers and that was looking at all the different um yeah the, i suppose the side effects of this drive to get institutional results um published results are improving um and actually off-rolling wasn't something i was aware of at the time this is but this is the this idea that, that a school might try and push a child out of uh off its roles get it off its books essentially um because uh that child might not be seen to be uh helping it get good results so if you take them out of the statistics essentially you've uh, you know you've improved the, the the institution's chance of getting good data um and uh it's uh yeah it's 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 it, it i mean it, it's very difficult to be categoric about when this is happening uh you know within an individual institution i, I tend to look at I, I tend to look at data and if i if i can see that a school is for example losing losing children between year particularly as as the gcse results approach then you have to ask questions as to why they're losing it especially when a uh, school might be rated outstanding with Ofsted so you think well why are these why are these children going to leave this institution um and um you know just ask questions of that really um yeah and I know that that's something that people have been putting pressure on Ofsted to take more account of that because yeah. there's a number of things that can happen within the category of off-rolling, mm. can't there? Because I, I worked at a school where there was a scandal where there was, they were, they were, there's this thing called guest status. Right. So on the data management system, um, you could, like, a student can be put on guest status if, for example, they are a school refuser and they don't really ever turn up, or if they're dual placement, say, and so, you know, the, the, and, and it's decided that the results will count at the other school, then they're put on guest status. Mm. And a number of students who were attending the school still 
um, who were going there every day um, had been put onto guest status, mm. and then that blew up, and it became a thing. And it was on a dispatches. There was a, there was a, a documentary about it, yeah. which which interestingly interviewed um, one of the students and their family members um, about what that felt like. You know, what must it feel like to be a kid mm. who's been sort of taken off the books because they're going to make the school look bad on paper, yeah. you know. Um, it's, but but then, the, so, so there's that sort of technical, you know, just like mm. declassifying, de changing mm. the classification of certain students to, to change the school's results. Um, but then there's also, like you say, there are some schools where the numbers of kids that, that, that were there at the start of year 10 compared with at the end of year 11... Mm you know, is, is drastically reduced. Yeah. And that's not always through off-rolling. That's through, I don't know, but there, there are other methods by which some students are somehow, you know, asked politely mm. but insistently to leave. I'm not quite sure about all the different ways in which that happens, but maybe maybe you know more about that than I, I do. I mean, the classic one that you hear about uh, is, is, you know, uh, a parent told that, you know, we need to take this child out because uh, otherwise they'll have an exclusion or they have it on their record. So we don't want that. So we just need to do it quietly if, if, if you like. And um, yeah, and that's, and that often I think works and the, and the child is taken out. Um, so yeah, I, I do think it, it, it does go on. And I'm glad, you know, you mentioned Offset there. I mean, it, it, Offset has been onto this in, in, in the last two or three years, um, certainly. And that, that's good because I think, you know, previously, as, uh, you know, I remember putting it to Ofsted, you know, you've you've rated the school outstanding. Why haven't you looked at the data properly? Well, you know, why haven't you looked at the data in detail? I mean, Ofsted certainly at that time was was looking very closely at um, putting huge weight on, on exam results. But my point was, well, OK, you've looked at the headline data. Why haven't you looked at the fact that, you know, the number of kids in the denominator of the equation is, is has gone down so drastically? Why haven't you commented on this in your report? So, um and I think you know they they have they have been doing that in recent years, which is a good thing, definitely. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and you, just as a tangent, again, you mentioned your mm. book there, by the way, Education by Numbers: yeah. The Tyranny of Testing, which is brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I, I think it's um, it should be more widely read. I strongly recommend uh, to listeners to to get their hands on a copy of that because it's important. There was there was a similar book that was written last year with the same with the same name. It was called The Tyranny of Testing um, by Sherto Gill and, and Ken Gergen, which covered some of the same ground. Um, and obviously, people are really looking at all of the pressure that's put mm. on kids through through and on schools this top down this top down pressure that comes mm. down um which is often you know sort of well intentioned i think i think it's important to note that you know people the, there are no baddies here like everybody sort of wants what's what's best for kids and they've got very different ideas about how to go about that mm. um but we need to be honest here and and <laughs> i was just looking at just while we've been ch chatting um i just found this so there's a government website um ca called uh 10 facts you need to know about academies and the second one it says myth um academies don't lead to higher standards which you know the evidence—that's not a myth. The evidence suggests that that's the the case. And then, and then under the fact setting uh, section, it says evidence from around the world. That's interesting, isn't it? Not necessarily from England, where these policies happen. Clearly demonstrates that educational performance is improved by giving autonomy to frontline teaching professionals and holding those professionals to account for the outcomes they achieve. It is not the case that every academy performs better than every local authority school, but the academy system makes it easier to put in place those factors that incontrovertibly drive up standards. 
Um, it better allows underperformance to be tackled when it does occur and establish a system more likely to lead to long-term improvements in results over the next decade. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a wish, isn't it? At the end, the end of that, they're saying that this should lead to improved results over the next decade. This, this thing, this myths and fact mm. sheet was published five years ago. Mm. So we're halfway through that decade. But it seems it just reads like propaganda. Yeah. That. Like this, like this is under the under the the, the banner of myths and facts. Mm. But it's just it's clearly yeah. that that's a very loose definition of the word fact. I'm glad you're having the same. Uh, it has the same impression on you as it does to me. Seeing these things, it's like, oh my goodness. I mean, that such a that that second one that you read was such a long statement that actually, I mean, trying to unpick it and and trying to kind of say well what's your evidence for this i mean even the word autonomy is um is hugely um it's hugely tricky i mean you know they talk about giving autonomy to professionals i think they said in that statement but um i think most people would now agree i think most people observing the academy's policy in detail would agree that it it doesn't provide more autonomy to individual schools it provides autonomy at the level of the academy trust running things it gives more freedoms to them compared to say um like a group of schools which might be in within a local authority would would have i think i think that's fair but the individual school is then subject to kind of control by that that trust so if you're a head teacher you know a school head teacher you're not necessarily so i don't think you've got more autonomy than you would have if you're a school head teacher working within a local authority so and then if you and they're sort of if they're saying autonomy is um you know is a good thing says international evidence well you know if you're looking at like test results for individual for, for for countries around the world and then you're sort of linking them to individual aspects of accountability of, of autonomy and that within those those countries even defining autonomy within each country is, is very difficult i mean i just don't think those kind of sweeping statements just aren't justified by the actual evidence out there they aren't so yeah yeah there's <laughs> there's one more that caught my eye warwick which I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on so so the next one is uh, myth academies aren't transparent and then it goes fact academies are actually much more accountable than local authority schools academy performance is monitored directly by regional school commissioners who intervene promptly in instances of underperformance. Mm. So can we just sort of focus a little bit on this this idea of regional school commissioners and yeah. this idea of transparency and accountability? Oh my goodness, again, there's a lot to unpick there. I mean, transparency. So there is a level of, of transparency within the academy system in the sense that they publish annual accounts, which, you know, people, the journalists like me do, do look at. Um, so uh, you, you, that, that's, a, that's a key part of accountability and transparency in that sense. But um, often the, the, the information that you really want is, is, is not in there. I mean, you know, MPs on select committees have made this point as well, that um, sometimes you want to know exactly how much of the money that's getting, going to the trust is, is getting to individual schools. And it, it, you're not necessarily getting that information. And that's actually key because, you know, if the, if the allegation sometimes is that the school, the trust is taking too much money to, at the centre, you know, and hoovering up lots of schools and not passing money on, you want to know that and, and, you're, not, and you're, not, you're not getting that information. And, and those kind of scandals, I don't think, were present before the academy system. That was not that was not a, a problem that the previous system had. So, you know, you're not getting transparency where you need it necessarily. I mean, I remember a um, uh, Panorama did a documentary on the 
the Academy Trust called Bright Tribe a few years ago. Um, it's one I've also reported on. And, and again, and, and the, uh, again, the, the, there was a lot of concern about what was going on at the centre of that trust. And they interviewed a chair of governors there who said he couldn't find financial information on what was going on within the, within the trust. And this is a chair of governors of one, one of its own schools. So, you know, this idea of transparency is not is is, is often not there. I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of myths around it. You know, um, the, the the transparency that you get within academy accounts that tell you, for example, you know, what, how much the highest paid person was paid, and if they're a if they're a trustee of the organisation, you get that you get that information by name. Um, but sometimes you, you, you know you, you don't get the, the relevant information. Like one of the biggest trusts, Harris Federation, you, you know we know how much the the chief executive is paid because he happens to be a trustee, and we know that there's several, uh, is, uh, lots of people on more than two hundred thousand pounds within that organisation. We don't know which who they are because they they don't have to be named, and that is less transparent than the local authority system where council officers above a certain amount of money have to be um, have to be named. So. You know, again, it's it's very simplistic to talk about improved transparency within academies. It certainly could be a lot better, I think. And then we could get onto accountability again, but that's quite a long answer just on transparency. So I don't know. Um, I mean, accountability. Yeah. I suppose the key thing with accountability is um, you always ask uh, accountability to whom. So academies might be very accountable, probably. I think, although again, with the lack of transparency, means you can't always be sure. But I think they're very they're accountable to the the, the regional schools commissioner, and to the government. Well, this is all behind the scenes. They're not they're, they're not necessarily accountable locally. They're certainly local people. I speak to teachers and and and, and governors and parents who who have concerns about what's going on in academy. And they they struggle to get accountability because it. Again, the accountability is upwards; it's not outwards to the community, and that's, you know, reporting on it. That's 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 one of the key weaknesses of the policy, I think. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And so, like, there are some people I know that have, that use the word privatization mm. often when they're talking about academies and free schools, and they see the two things as synonymous. And indeed, on that on that government FAQ mm. fact fact myth busting thing. Um, they talk about that, that that it's a myth that education is privatized to what extent do you like where, where do you where do you land on that question um i don't think you should dismiss it as a myth at all i mean oh, there's a debate about whether privatization is the best word I, i'm not sure i mean you know, people who want to defend the academy system would say uh it it's not privatization because you don't have shareholders you're not paying dividends so it's not uh you know these are these are charities they're not uh, profit making companies so so obviously that's an important view um i think the word private though does have a lot of power because um you know what i see is certainly the academy's model can give what is essentially private control of these state-funded organisations to individuals or small groups of people um, who are running the organisation. I mean, I, you know, I, I've written a lot about an organisation called um, Future Academies, which is um, uh, sponsored by, it was set up by Lord Nash, who's the former academies minister, and his wife. Um, uh, 
they, they did so in the new, new towards the end of the, the Labour government. So 2008, I think the first school was set up. They now got 10 schools, and essentially they were in complete control of the governance system of that organisation. So, you know, if they want to run what is quite a controversial curriculum within those schools, local people might be against it. But essentially, the go the governance system, the, the the method of control, gives those local people essentially no. No say. It's, it's completely in control of, of, of um, you know, of, of, of two private people. Um, and when you so when you've got very tight control like that, and it's this is not the only case. Far far from it. You know, the the academies the, the academies model um, sets up academy trusts where uh, three to five people. It could be what's called members of the trust, which are who are. Um, akin to shareholders, as, as, as has been described in the past. And they, they essentially have the control of that organization. You know, they can, uh, including hiring and firing rights of, of, of the governors of the organization, the trustees. So um, it is, it is, it can be private control. So I, I think, well, I'm, I'm not sure whether I'd use, I don't know, I, I'm sort of on the fence about whether you, whether you use the word privatization, but essentially it, it is allowing what is, private control of state-funded organisations. It doesn't always happen that way, but that's that's what the policy allows, I think. Yeah, and there's a transfer as well in terms of like the school grounds, aren't there? The, the, the estates like, is often... So uh, it's not. it's been a while since I've looked at mm. this, so this might not be not be the current thing, but I seem to remember when this thing first started boosting up under, under Gove mm. in that early sort of part of the coalition government, um, that the the school grounds are signed over to the academy sponsor on something like a two hundred year lease. So grounds that were previously, you know, publicly mm. owned and overseen by local authority are now essentially there is a transfer of ownership, in some sense. Uh, it, it's actually quite uh, as ever with academies, it's complicated. And um, generally, most in most academies, it depends. Depends what what school type of school was actually run was in place before the academization. So if it's um, for most schools, they were community schools, which actually means that the the least um, the least the academy trust will hold the land uh, as a leaseholder, and the uh, the freeholder will continue to be the the local authority. Um, and, and they'll pay peppercorn rent on that. The the, the academy trust, but the um, when they were not a community school, so a foundation school, as it's called, uh, they had um, greater control of the uh, the land pre uh, academization Then that land will transfer freehold uh, to the academy trust, and that's when it tends to be a bit more controversial. I'm thinking of a school in um, Norwich that transferred um, to again a very well connected academy trust uh, five or six years ago on a very large site, and there was a lot of controversy then at the time because it was. Uh, you know that that land passed freehold to the academy trust. I mean, the government would say that they can't do anything with the um, with the land. They can't sell off the land without getting permission from from central government. So um, it's difficult for them to just say sell it off for housing and make money out of it like that, which is obviously people concerned about. But um, but yeah, so that's the that's the position as I understand it. Right. Okay. Um, and that's so. The, I've got there's two more themes on my list. One of them is around uh, deregulation. Yeah. Which um, we've sort of touched upon a little bit, but it'd be, I think it'd be interesting just to look at some of the differences between the, how, how um, state-sponsored schools are regulated compared with academies, and then and then lastly about about f financial 
uh, implications of what we've been talking about. And again, we touched upon that just now when we were talking about privatization. But there have been a number of that's like they're often euphemistically described as financial irregularities, aren't they? Mm. Um, and not just like lots of people focus on the the pay of of CEOs of mats that, that is often mm. you know uh, I think the, the highest ones are like three or four hundred thousand pounds a year, aren't they? That they're paying themselves. Um, but there's so that's what often people focus on, and like, is it okay for them to pay themselves that much money? Um, but also, there's been financial irregularities that are happening again around this, this, this sort of questions around accountability and things like procurement. I remember reading about schools, you know, a bit like the PPE procurement thing last year when Matt Hancock's was it his pub landlord or something or his neighbour yeah. um, set up a PPE procurement company overnight that was being given you know multi million pound contracts. I've seen on a much smaller scale examples where schools, for example, um, have you know like a family member has set up some sort of an IT procurement company and then they they buy all the computers mm. say and that, that that sort of thing has happened on a smaller scale in the schools uh, sector as well hasn't it yeah sorry what do you want me to talk about first the the, the deregulation or the um yeah the... yeah well which which order do you want to take it in um yeah i mean i think deregulation i suppose there's two key areas with um where there's more freedom for the academy trust versus um, versus the, the, the local authority school. I mean, you've got um, uh, freedom over the curriculum in terms of what is taught, and and uh, uh, less regulation over over um, paying conditions, teachers paying conditions. So, um, I mean, the latter. I mean, it you know it does tend to generate a lot of the stories in the sense that um, you don't have any. While academies will tend to follow, often tend to follow the national pay structure for, um, you know, for, for, for staff below management, um, uh, or certainly, sorry, that's probably slightly unfair. So, so there's no national pay structure at all for the, uh, you know, for academy chief executives, um, which is why I think you, you know, some of these stories are generated with with very large. Um, salaries for the for the chief executives because there's just nothing for them to follow whereas lower down the scale you have the teachers um, paying conditions document which although it doesn't apply in the academy sector uh that a lot of academy trusts will follow that for for, for classroom teachers um so yes that's um uh that sense of deregulation will generate a lot of a lot of controversy um i think the curriculum perhaps less so um you know, so academies have got this freedom to, uh, you know, not not to not to follow the national curriculum. They do have to have a, a broad and balanced curriculum, as it said, that um, not necessarily um, in all of the detail. But um, I, I suspect, I suspect, uh, you know, lots of them are following the national curriculum. So it's it's less of a, I, th I think that's less of an issue, perhaps. Um, but um, there's all sorts of little aspects of deregulation that I, I you know, you do, you do come across sometimes. Um, I mean, I, um, I came across this school over the summer where I found that they were only um, paying teachers um, statutory sickness pay. Um, so that, which is, you know, in the UK is, is, is very, I think it's about, I think it's about 100 pounds a week statutory sickness pay. And I think this school was allowed to do. It's a very high-profile school, which was allowed to do that uh, because you know it doesn't have to follow national pay and conditions. Whereas you know the teachers' contracts would not allow that at all. They'd be paid much much more than that. So, so that's something. Um, 
And sorry, what was the second? The second aspect was around the procurement. Um, it was around, yeah, yeah procurement slash yeah. financial irregularities that, that that ties into all of mm. all of these like these other things that we've been talking about, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm on perception perhaps is that um, they're kind of overt scandals that you talk about where somebody sets up um, somebody's. Uh, you know, paying a relative or, or a contract through a relative or something or contracts with their own companies. I mean, I think this was certainly an issue that was coming up a lot in the, uh, you know, as, as a cat, it was certainly in the uh, up to maybe five or six years ago, I think that was coming up quite a lot. I think it's, I, I think it's happening less now because I think, you know, people are aware that the scrutiny that, 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 that comes on these kind of things. Um, and I, I, so I think, I think there's those sort of really blatant scandals. I think, to be honest, I think there is there are probably less of them around. Um, I, well, you can also argue that the last couple of years has actually been dominated by people not, you know, just focusing on on dealing with COVID as well. So um, I don't know um, whether it's that people haven't been coming forward with these stories. I don't know, but I think they're. I don't. I don't think it's quite as much of an issue. But I mean. You know, certainly related party contracts, as they're called, have been, uh, you know, a, 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 a reporting theme in, in over, over the years. And again, it's this worry that the problem with the policy is that it gives too much, it, it can give too much power to a small group of people at, at, at the centre, you know, to, to, to operate you know, as they as they choose. I mean, I just find it extraordinary that kind of friends and a group of friends and even relatives, you know, husband and wife can can set up essentially set up a trust and, and run a group of schools, be in control of a group of schools, you know, and, you know, with millions and millions of, of state funding and, and really not be subject to that, well, local democratic accountability, just to kind of any kind of checks and balances um, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And so do you see when I asked you at the start, you know, like, what do you think the rationale for this is? And you said mm. that you think it's political. Mm. Do you think that it's essentially a sort of an ideological position that that deregulation and competition and market forces will lead to innovation and the competition will, you know, um, will drown out any bad practice is that is that essentially what you what you see this as, as being driven by i think so i mean to be honest i think you hear those kind of arguments less now than you know than, than perhaps you did um a few years ago i mean certainly you know that's kind of thatcherite argument which i think is still there in the in the background of the policy um yeah i think more nowadays you kind of it's more that people advocating the policy kind of see it as Academization has to be better. It's sort of inevitable. Schools need to accept the inevitability of it. Local authorities haven't got any money anymore, um, so you know we need to we need to follow this policy. But I do think those kind of those kind of thoughts that um, this kind of quasi market situ situation, a kind of sort of almost a corporate approach to education, is going to improve things. I think that is definitely in the background. I mean, I sometimes wonder when I was covering um, you know schools reform, say. Again, probably in the Labour times, uh, yeah, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and then this would go back to, 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 to the Tories before Labour as well, that the idea that they wanted successful schools to be able to expand and sort of, um, you know, just just expand their influence over the system, maybe take on more pupils. But the problem they had was that, um, and again, that was sort of a quasi-market kind of, kind of approach that, that, that 
sort of the successful institutions thrive and you know the failing ones well sort of go to the wall is the kind of the extreme version of it but they had this problem that you obviously if you're a head teacher running one successful school there's only a limit there's a limit to how much you can expand and um you know often heads maybe didn't particularly want to expand their number particularly anyway because they might think that sort of you know becoming a big school or it might compromise their ethos but so what you needed was sort of chains of schools that you could suddenly, um, you know, that, that one organization could be running a, not just one school, but a group of schools. And, and this is kind of where we've ended up, I think, with the multi-academy trusts. Um, and, and it is, yeah, it's more sort of a, it's more of a, 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 a market competition approach, I think, you know, definitely. Um, but I think it's got... You know, while advocates would say that, you know, there are advantages to that in that, you know, the successful institutions and, and head teachers get to, you know, expand that influence. I think there are, there's a lot of, you know, issues that we need to look at with it. I mean, I don't particularly think that, um, you know, having a system whereby you've got potentially organisations expanding and contracting and taking over other schools and, it creates a lot of instability, I think, and I'm not sure instability is, is necessarily what parents are looking for in terms of the way schools are run. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, it's hugely disruptive. Having worked at a school that underwent um, a forced academization, mm. um, it's so disruptive right. um, in terms of like just like the... The sense of fear right. that there was at the time, you know, even just thinking about it now, I can still remember it. And the way in which um, the, the they call it the Chupi system, mm. they? the way the way in which they transfer contracts across into the new structure. But then they, you know, they change the staffing structure to get rid of certain people who aren't seen to be on board with the new right. the new uh, way of doing things. Um, and that sense of I really remember that sense of. Um, just you know uncertainty the huge disruption um to to the in in so many ways i mean it might have been that i worked at a particularly brutal example right. of it um and i you know i work my job now is to work with schools and i work with many with many free schools and academies mm. as well as state schools and independent and you know there are many really happy places yeah. you know i'm yeah. not suggesting that this is no, like no. some some orwellian nightmare um but um like you say you know it's it's it, the, the thing that i've sort of most taken out of this conversation so far is that it's really complicated mm. and it's like there's a number of things that need to be picked through um and and so there's one question that I have. Like we've talked essentially about free schools and academies mm. so far. There's this question about like to what extent do you think it's reversible? Like I can remember reading something quite early on about saying that like because it's causing like Gove's irreversible mm. revolution. Like like in in terms of like the legal contracts. I know that in the last Labour manifesto they had that they were going to get rid of academies and free schools and put them back into local authority control. But that's just a manifesto pledge. Like, how easy would that be to do if anybody was to, was, if there was mm. to be a change of government and somebody wanted to do that? Is it is it even doable, or do you think that the legal and financial implications are just too messy and huh. that it is essentially irreversible? No, I think every, I think it is reversible. I mean, I've got to say, I mean, I I do find it slightly, <laughs> I don't know, frustrating is the word, but you know. This you hear this argument constantly. It's like it, it's all inevitable. There's nothing you can do. It, you can't argue against this policy because it's irreversible, or you can't you can't argue against the school because it's 
becoming an academy because it's inevitable. This is what the government wants. The resistance is futile, essentially. Um, you know, I think there have got to be better arguments than this. You need to argue why this system is, is the one that we should have, should continue to have, should continue to grow, rather than just saying, well, we, we can't do anything about this now. I mean, the, the most glaring thing is that Michael Gove, you know, when he came in, he managed to you know, set in train, in train a system whereby, you know, thousands of schools have changed their structures. It's, it doesn't strike me as impossible that this could be reversed if somebody wanted to reverse it. And I think from, I'm not, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but um, from legal people I've spoken to, it, it, it can be done. It's, it's whether there's a political will to do it is, is the question, I think, you know. I mean, you could also argue that, um, you know, is it sensible to change, go around changing structures um, it's very expensive, you know, legally, it might be quite, it, it, it quite might be quite onerous. And you think, well, that's exactly what's happened over the last, you know, certainly over the last 10 years. So, you know, if that's an argument against it, why have we done it in the first place? So I, I don't know, I, I think, um, I think let's have the proper argument about why this is this is a, the policy that needs to happen and continue to happen rather than saying that there's nothing we can do about it, really. I think we're far too deferential towards, you know, the political centre, the policy makers, really. <laughs> let's, let's, mm. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, thank you. Just, just, please, so go on. just briefly on that, I mean, in some people, I, mean, I think, I think some, at least one prominent lawyer I can think of has, has said that you, you can just do it very simply with a very simple piece of legislation. So bringing schools back into the local authority system. So, you know, yeah. Right. Okay. So the political will uh, needs to be there, but mm. it should it should be doable, um, if and when that time comes. And just lastly, uh, before we move on to more optimistic mm. uh, topics or hopeful topics, mm. um, another thing, a theme that's emerged, and you mentioned it earlier, is this idea of bad policy, which mm. which sort of sits, you know, it's much much of a broader thing than just mm. this free schools and academies question. Um, what's your sense on this, like, like on on the the way in which policy is created, the ways in which policies are often announced and then and then quietly dropped? Um, you know, there's lots of that stuff going on. What's your what's your read of of policy making and um, what's good about it and what uh, isn't so good? Oh my goodness! <laughs> I mean, I suppose well, my thing is that it's. Uh... We start from the wrong, the wrong place with English policy making. We we start with the needs of the policymaker, the political centre, where we should start with the needs of the of the child in all of this. We don't, we just don't. I mean, you know, it's an easy thing to say, but I mean, that's just. I mean, I wrote my book on the results pressures on schools because it seemed to me that again, um, we had this argument that this very complicated sort of accountability structure that was in place was kind of inevitable because politically it was too difficult to change it you know and so if I say well you know the fact that primary schools are put under huge pressure to improve their key stage two results means that we have you know the, at the time certainly you know the best part of year six was spent on test preparation even though these results are not important for the child that, that doesn't make any sense to me that's um, a side effect which is bad for the child but it seemed to be politically uh, it was seen to be politically unacceptable ever to change it. Um, so that's been the central failing, I think, for me with, with policy making is that it's far too, um, we're far too willing to kind of accept that 
the needs of the politicians making this policy have to come first. Um, and it sounds like, I mean, it's, I don't want to, it sounds kind of, people will think that's, oh, it's kind of naive to kind of even make this point, or it's a bit of a trite, easy thing to say. But, you know, other countries do do things in different ways. You know, they, they introduce policies after, you know, proper evidential studies. You know, we, we just don't seem to do things here like that here with, you know, the politician announces something and it has to be implemented. Lost my headphones there. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, you know, I think I've seen we've seen that in the approach to COVID as well. Again, again, it seems incredibly centralised, incredibly secretive. Just, um, I, I, I don't know. I just think people should think constantly be saying, well, is this actually in the interests of the people it's supposed to be serving? Because it, it, it isn't. You know, it's in the interests of Westminster and. The politicians um so yeah yeah and, and i mean are there any particular examples of policies that, that that illustrate this point well yeah i would say that key stage two example i mean i was looking up a piece i wrote for ts um a few years back my my, my daughter would, um you know she's going through key stage one at the time and was talking about being a bit stressed about assessments you know and, and i was just looking at the policy at the time and you know, um, Michael Gove and, and Nick Gibb had introduced big changes to the assessment system. In particular, I was thinking, uh, thinking about, you know, they put more demands on, on, on what was being taught in primaries, made it more academic with the, um, in various aspects actually. Um, and, and my point was, well, have you done any studies on, on the likely impact on the, on the individual child of doing this? You know, you might think it sounds good to be, you know, making things more academic, raising standards, but actually, you know, if, if this is being done in a way that demotivates the child or, um, you know, stresses them more, you know, what's the impact? And, and, and there's, they've been, they haven't even looked at it, you know, it, it's almost like it's enough to say, we've raised standards, look at us, aren't we great? You know, I, I just, I just think we should expect so much more from our, politicians from our policy making process we just, and we seem to accept it that this is a, this is an acceptable way of doing things yeah yeah absolutely and and you know and the conversations that i've been having recently with young people themselves with parents and carers with clinical and educational psychologists are you know the message is coming through loud and clear that all of this top down accountability does often have deleterious effects on young people's sense of well-being. Mm. And what, there's a number of things that are really interesting about this. One, I was listening to a, a programme on Radio 4 the other day. It was about failure um, and about how we need to embrace it and just be sort of like embrace our incompetence and stop trying to pretend like we're brilliant at everything all the time. And they were talking about how like in the 60s and 70s, like to, to, to be very aspirational for your child or personally to say, I want to do this. I want to, I want to do X, Y, and Z with my life. Mm. That was seen as being really weird. Like, like mainly people just wanted their kids to be normal, right. <laughs> you know? And so, but it's, but now that seems absurd, doesn't it? Mm. Now, like the, this idea that we need to attain and strive for every child to reach the stars yeah. sort of thing has become like this universally accepted uh, thing as though it's an unquestioned good. But often, you know, like I was working, I worked at a place a while ago, it's called the Self-Managed Learning College. The kids can, they literally self-manage, they can choose what to do, they can choose not to do stuff. Um, and often what I found, which was really interesting, is that students choose not to strive if they don't want to, I remember working with a with a girl. I was the science tutor. I was working with this kid. Uh, she was really good at science. She was very naturally gifted at it. And I remember saying to her, 
you could get an A in this, you know, if you wanted. And she was like, yeah, no, I could. Thank you. It's nice to hear that. But I only need a C to get into college. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really that into science. And I don't want to compromise my social life for the next six months studying for, to pass some tests that I don't really need to pass. Yeah. And so, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And there were a number of cases of that, you know, yeah. which is fascinating because that mindset is nowhere to be seen in the, you know, the, the idea that, that a school should, like, that it's a moral, a moral good that every, to get to wring every possible grade out mm. of every possible kid is this unquestioned good. And if the child doesn't want that, then they don't know what's good for them. Mm. You know, like, we're doing this because we know what's in their best interest. And that's often not the case. And that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. You know, like, like you say, if you, if you look at this from the, the, the view from the child's perspective, you, you end up with a very different set of questions mm. and a very different set of answers. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I hadn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before, actually, that, that particular example. But yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it is. It is. I think, and I think actually they could, you know, the people perspective could be, I don't know, it's brought much more into, into policy. It would make it really interesting, wouldn't it, if you, you know, if you had some kind of forum for considering the people's perspective on, on policies. Absolutely. I've been thinking for a while now that, that we need to have a system of governance where I've been, I've been doing some work on this thing called implementation science recently. And one of the main ideas is the idea of a vertical slice team. So when we work in schools, instead of it being just the senior team who's deciding what gets done and decisions are announced, you have a vertical slice team where you, so you have teachers, teaching mm. assistants, the SENCO, it also senior leaders, but maybe also parents and, yeah. and kids and governors and what have you. And you look at this problem from multiple perspectives and you end up with much better policy. Uh, you get much better buy-in. Yeah. And it's just like a win-win-win. And I really think that we should have that, like at the top of the DFE, like instead of having some like ideologically minded cabinet minister mm. who's, you know, to get to, to become a cabinet minister, you have to vote against your conscience so many yeah. times that at that point you're basically useless. Sorry, that's putting it a little bluntly. I'm sure there's some good people who do those jobs, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Do you hear that thing recently? Rory Stewart was talking about how he voted against the whip early on in his career, and George Osborne was at the was at the gate in the in the lobby, and he said, "If you go down that through that door, you're not going to get promoted for five years." Wow. Um, and and he didn't, and he and he repeatedly let him know that that was why he wasn't being promoted. And so, yeah, you need to play the game. Yeah. You need to be show that you're a safe pair of hands to become a cabinet minister. And instead, so instead of that, imagine if you had a vertical slice team, not just as not just as a sort of like a citizens' assembly consultation exercise, but actually like the executive who's making decisions is a vertical slice team comprising all the like, representatives from all of the people who are affected mm. throughout education, and not just experts either, but you know, like early career teachers, student representatives, parents. Um, you know, that would be that would lead to a very different set of policies, wouldn't it? I think so. Yeah. I mean, you do see. Uh, uh, sorry, we're going to go on. No, no. Carry no on. I'm just thinking of you know, occasionally when I when you see kind of rebellions is is when the, the, some of these pressures build up and covering the. Um, there was a lot of stories, you know, before the summer about um, Pimlico Academy. It was coming back to this academy trust I mentioned before, Future Academies with. Um, a lot of controversy about the way that that school, a large secondary school in central London, was being run, and um, you know, people protest um, at, at the end of the at the end of the winter term, last day of term, I think, where there's like hundreds of hundreds of students protesting about what was happening, and you know, um, that's what can happen if you've got a very top-down regime that seems to be detached from 
you know, the, what, what that pupil community thought should happen. So, um, yeah, yeah. But obviously, a lot of the time, that's not, you know, that that's an extreme case. A lot of the time, people, you know, things might be going on that, you know, that aren't always pleasing the pupils. The, the kids might be stressed out for various things, reasons. But there's, it's t it takes a lot to actually to bring that kind of level of protest about. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And where, you know, I mean, top down, like one of the big problems, I think, is with top down implementation, because even when you've got a good policy, often top down people, there's something about human nature where people don't like being told what to do, even when it's a good idea. There's something that yeah. just sort of it gets people's backs up, just like the idea that you're being told what to do. And yeah. so many, you know, if, if you ask any teacher, what percentage of, of change initiatives that you've seen in your career led to sustained positive outcomes for mm. kids? It's virtually zero. People often say 10 or 20 percent. And then if you really push them on it and say, demonstrable gains that were sustained mm. over time you know th there's very little um good practice around and and like, sometimes top-down stuff works but it's often i think if it's the, the low impact stuff i remember like a school that i was at there used to be always food everywhere the kids could eat everywhere and top-down change it was like you're only allowed to eat in the canteen and it was overnight just a much nicer place to be in because oh, there okay. wasn't like yeah. sandwiches smeared up all the walls you know things like uniform <laughs> and stuff but when it when it's a when it's a like one of those sort of like high effort, high impact sort mm. of like change initiatives that's like, you know, behavior initiative or changing the way that you do some aspects of teaching and learning, like around feedback or data collection, mm. whatever it might be. Those things top down doesn't really work. But something else that's, that seems to have changed in recent years, and I think that this was happening mm. under New Labour as well, under when Blunkett was the education secretary, was the was a move away from deliberation within the civil service? Mm. Like it used to be the case that that if you came up with a policy, you know, civil servants a big part of their role is to tell you like a hundred reasons why this thing won't work. Mm. Like we we call it in the implementation science toolkit, we call it a pre mortem. So it's like okay, let's picture ourselves two years down the line. These here's all the reasons why this idea is not going to work. Right. Now let's work through the list and fix all those problems, and you know you get better policy out the other end, but. It seems that there was, there's been a move away from that within the civil service, and that there's a lot less deliberation. And we see lots of lots of like when we're just talking about this idea of bad policy, you see lots of things that are sort of announced late at night, you know, on Twitter sort of yeah. thing, and then they they often you know quietly dropped depending on how they're responded in time for the Sunday mornings. And or often it's a policy like you know I remember Gavin Williamson had one a while ago, which was like we're going to ban mobile phones in schools or something, mm. and it's like a headline grabbing thing. But actually, most schools don't allow kids to use their mobile phones. Like, it's not really a thing. Yeah. It didn't actually lead to any change. It's just like, just like it's sort of like, look, look busy. Yes. <laughs> you know, we need to have something in the headlines mm -hmm. that makes it look like we're doing stuff here. Yeah, very media focused. I mean, it's certainly over the last year, you know, watching the COVID policy as well, it seems sort of media fixated, as you say, you know, things can be announced late at night to... I don't know, brief to the Sunday papers or, or, or even put out on Twitter, as you say, which is absolutely staggering, really. You know, when you find out head teachers learning policies that are, obviously they're going to have to implement, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the civil yeah. service, one thing, you know, we've been looking at quite a lot in the last year or so is the, the use of these expert groups as well, which I think which um, weren't... Uh, weren't happening in the same way, I think, before before in recent years, whereby I, I think it's almost like bypassing the civil service where the, the government will handpick 
a few people to sit on an expert group and then get them to you know work up policies i'm thinking of the the the, the current work on teacher training in particular is very much um in my thoughts at the moment um you know and and it's, it's the same individuals um coming up on serving on multiple groups yeah no i no real appointment process at all as far as i'm aware just people just announced their names just announced and um you know lots of issues around that kind of uh, that, that kind of development i think i think it's something that somebody um some, somebody like the institute of government should 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 look at somebody external should look at what's been going on because um yeah i think there are issues with it definitely yeah yeah and you know i mean it's a good idea to talk to experts but it's also a really good idea to talk to non-experts. Like, and like, do we know? Like, I'm sort of surprised that people are still doing this because mm. we've known about groupthink yeah. for like 50, 50 years. Yeah. You know, like when you get like-minded people in a room together, you get bad decision making sure. because, like, for example, in an expert group, none of them wants to ask a stupid question. You know, mm. like because they're, they're like they're too busy trying to look like experts. And actually, the stupid question is often the most important yeah. one. Like, have we really thought this through? Like. Like, what if, what if, you know, like kids don't respond well to this or whatever, you yeah. know, there's just this assumption that this, that whatever the project is, is going to lead to brilliant outcomes. Yeah. And, you know, you, sometimes you just need people to, to ask those, those stupid questions and to, to like, like I say, deliberation yeah. and to just, you know, we know how to avoid groupthink, um, but it doesn't seem to have been taken on board by policymakers. Mm. Um, and it seemed like you know Dominic Cummings's vision is just another version of group of, like expert-led groupthink that he wants to replace cabinet ministers yeah. with his, like, his friends basically who he perceives to have brilliant minds and who are going to make everything better. But again, you know, like th there was a bunch of the smartest people on the planet mm. or in the United States at the time that thought it would be a good idea to invade you know the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba mm. or you know like the ongoing like catastrophic decision making around Vietnam. That were, they were not they were not frivolous mm. people they were very weighty people mm. with phds and who'd written you know extensive treatises on international relations and government policy but sometimes you you know yeah we, we just know that expert groups is not really yeah such a good such a good idea ironically coming coming so it's talked about group thing hasn't he but uh, you know as you say he's susceptible to it himself <laughs> perhaps yeah I mean, it seems so it seems so yeah i go on Sorry, were you going to say something? No, I just think he's talked about transparency. I do agree with him on that. You know, certainly since leaving his position as chief advisor, he, he's talked about, um, you know, the, the, the need for greater transparency around the COVID decision making and how transparency does, uh, you know, open things up a bit. And I think that's, the, you know, if you have a, an ex expert group system, you know, transparency would at least give the chance for outsiders then to come in and scrutinize things and obviously with the covid decision making you know if there's you know instantaneous transparency then you have people coming in and, and, and putting a different perspective and it's the same for you know for, for everything really you know uh, it helps that, that things can be critiqued yeah absolutely and obviously they, they attempted to do that with the daily press briefings didn't they but mm. they were sort of after a while they became sort of transparently opaque right, <laughs> that you yeah. could see that actually yeah. there was that, that what we were seeing was not what was really going on and the disagreements that were happening uh, behind closed doors and what have you were sort of presented mm. very simplistically when actually people were really deeply divided
Okay, so let's wrap this up. Um, there's three questions that I often ask my guests. Sometimes this takes half of the podcast, but we'll do this as a sort of quick fire round, if you like, mm. um, which is positives, um, challenges, and then we'll end on solutions. So we've talked a lot about problems um, and lots of the work that you do, like you say, you're rummaging around in the undergrowth and, and by, by the nature of a journalist, you know, like you're going to highlight where there's problems. But I imagine you see lots of amazing stuff on your travels as well. So what do you think we're getting right currently? What do you what do you like the look of that you think we should be celebrating more or doing more to promote? I mean, I suppose my main thoughts on this is is, is my experience as a, as a parent. So I've got children, 10 year old and, and one that's just coming up to nine. Um, you know, and our experience of, of primary education, I think is, you know, English primary education, I think is it perhaps doesn't get as good coverage as it should do I think you know I think I think I think it's a success story generally you know and I think it's almost like despite all this stuff I write about the bad policy and the you know and the scandals and and, and the failings you know on the ground often schools are in primary schools I'm thinking particularly just because I've got the experience now you know are, are doing a good job you know they're they're professionally run they're they, uh, you know, certainly our experience has been, you know, run like clockwork, really committed teachers, um, you know, under a lot of pressure, but doing a good job, you know, um, I, I really, you know, and I think actually, if you look at the international evidence, primary schools in England have, have done have done pretty well on, you know, international tests, if you put any weight on them. Generally, there isn't any, I don't think there's any great evidence that primary schools have, in particular, have, um, you know, have, have have underperformed. So, which again, actually makes me extra sceptical for all the, you know, this endless talk about structural change, how you need structural change. Actually, no, I, I, I don't think, I, I don't think what we've got is some massive, um, massive failure. I, I just don't see it. So, you know, I, you know, want to pay tribute to, to people working within the sector, I think, continue to do a good job. I mean, you know, secondaries, I'm sure, um, when it comes to you know, I will see lots of aspects of good practice as well. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll just wait to see. But I just sort of got that extra perspective as a, as a sort of a user now. So um, so yeah, I would I would certainly highlight that as a as, as a success. Yeah, thank you. I, I I absolutely agree. You know, like like lots of the stuff that we've been talking about has been at the level of policy mm. today, and the lived reality mm. of like being in schools day in day out. And I and I like the majority of my work is working working with with schools, mm. with students, and with uh, teachers and school leaders. Um, and they're amazing places. Yeah. Like like you're right, they are amazing places. Te like you say, teachers care deeply about their kids. Um, and like you say, often despite the yeah. difficulties of the structures and the top-down accountability and problems with, with inspections and what have you, the day-to-day -day experience of, like, the, I think the vast majority of, of yeah. young people um, is really, really good. Uh, but there is this significant minority, I think, yeah. for whom it clearly isn't working. And I, I would like to see it more responsive, more yeah. re reflective and sort of just intelligent and able to respond to the needs and particular yeah. uh, challenges that certain young people are facing. It seems like we've got we've still got this very one size. Sorry, I'm putting a, putting no. a downside on your upside no, here. No. But the, the, the fact that everything's a very one size fits all approach you know just it so clearly doesn't work for all the kids and there's a significant yeah. minority probably around about a third for whom you know it doesn't work very well and i think that we could do better on that front but i agree mm. the general the general gist is is really positive you know we, we it's an amazing thing um yeah that we have these places where kids can go 
you know, learn from one another, learn with each other, with subject experts. I mean, I do want to, you know, come back to the start of this, though, where, you know, I said that I had a good, ex generally enjoyed school, had a good experience, you know, and, you know, and kids, our kids have got a lot of advantages. I have to re remind myself that not, 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 everybody is coming at the system from these perspectives at all. And as you say, you know, maybe, you know, you would say the system, it, it, although a lots of policy has been laid, laid on top in the last quarter of a century in particular, you know, a lot of people would say it hasn't really, school, the schooling experience hasn't really changed despite all that for, for children, you know, since, you know, going back a century or more even, you know, and so does it need to be more, radically looked at you know that's that's the next question I, I i suppose um it's interesting you're saying about i think you were talking about narrow and possibly narrow you need it needs to be broadened a bit i don't know because that's one thing i wonder whether particularly when we're talking about you know schools being judged on just sort of english and maths i've, I've long i've long thought that um while these subjects are really important again the politicians would say that we have to we have to obsess about them you know does is the danger that we narrow things down to such an extent that you know the child will look at that and that those who might be you know see themselves as good in these subjects or likely to be top of the class in these subjects will think that's fine but actually the world out there is thankfully is a broader place and there's lots of um other qualities that children might need to do well in in life and actually if you if you maybe accentuate that that sort of breadth a bit more then you could you find more more children will actually find something they can excel at in school and, and actually find that valued and that more children are going to actually end up thinking that they've you know that, that school's been a positive experience for them rather than just being told well there's other kids who are better than you in these two subjects and therefore you know it's no good i mean i, I yeah I, again i just don't think the system has been kind of designed with kind of a proper deep approach to th thought thinking about how it might look at, look like well, yeah, the implications for the user essentially if that's probably too jargony that word but you know implications for the child going through this system yeah yeah absolutely and people talk a lot about the forgotten third don't they and about you know there's roughly about one in three kids who fail either english or maths at gcse and therefore have to resit it um, and, you know, some people would say, well, that's a good thing. We want we want to have high standards for, for kids for, mm. for literacy and numeracy. Yeah. And if they don't if they don't pass it, then we want to give them another chance. You can see that that's painted as a good mm. thing. Um, but the experience, I can say, you know, if you talk to a kid who's being, you know, to all intents and purposes, made to sit exams against their will, yeah. that they know they're going to fail. And often the kids often kids stop trying. They can't, if, they, if they don't really try at something, yeah. then they can't really fail at it. Yeah. You only really fail if you really try to pass. And that it can, yeah. you know, we've known about that since the 70s, yeah. this self-worth theory. Um, and th it's not fun to be branded a failure yeah. at age 16 as you're going out into the world. Strange. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. There are other ways that we could think about this. Um, okay, so, so let's... Um, move on to challenges um if, if thinking back over you know we've pulled out some key themes from from your mm. work over over the last decade what would you say are the if if you had to 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 sort of to pin it down to one challenge that you think all right this is this is not currently going as well as it might <laughs> my goodness it's quite hard to think about how to come at that question um I don't know. I mean, I, again, I sort of conceptually want to sort of talk about um, the biggest challenge is trying to get beyond thinking about things just from 
sort of quite a superficial, narrow policymaker perspective and trying to think about how we organise things so that the perspective of those actually on the end of the decision making is the most important, you know, and that would go right across, I think, well, looking at the Academy's policy in particular, you know, making sure that, um, you know, there's proper accountability and, and, and I suppose involved, the sense that decision making is not just done top down from the centre, so the Department for Education and the particular people who happen to be running a group of schools, you know, that it's actually done you know that the local communities have a have a, have have you know influence on that process you know that they have you know, there is some kind of accountability there's transparency they get to sit in you know horror of horrors sit in on meetings where decisions are taken and perhaps discuss those decisions you know um if um yeah if a if an organization is not sort of acting in the way that the community thinks is 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 right or there's corruption or there's a way of removing those those people perhaps done directly by the community um i don't know all those kinds of that kind of way of getting away from this sort of top-down policy making apparatus is, is is a certain that's the for me that's the biggest problem that policy is kind of detached from those that it's meant to serve yeah and then so addressing that would be the key thing yeah, that's I, that's a very smart answer, I think, and I agree. And it's and it's a biggie. So the next question is, <laughs> uh, how are you going to fix that? Like, how how would you go about um, changing that policy making ecosystem to be more inclusive and representative of users throughout, throughout the system? Oh my goodness! Um, I mean, I I don't know. Um, on a personal level, you know, obviously, I'm trying to to to, to highlight things that, that I don't think work and then just trying to you know trying to address it in ways you know that suggested by the last answer um, um, how could we change things I mean you know in terms of school control I don't think it's I don't think it's a crazy idea to think that that, that there should be local democratic representation in decision making about what happens in schools I don't think that's such a you know it's not such a crazy idea um, so I, I I would say that, that that would be that would be key you know open up open up decision making on school control what happens in schools um, yeah we go into sort of technical detail but I think it sounded like you want sort of uh, you know something that's conceptual I think that's yeah yeah, well, maybe we'll maybe I'll get you back on because I would like to have a much. It's mm. going to be a much longer conversation than we've got. But thank you for the broad strokes. I might just pull out to, to like the, so there was a Cambridge Primary Review that you were involved in a few years ago, yeah. weren't, wasn't there? And there was four key recommendations from that, which I'll just quickly share just uh, for the yeah. benefit of listeners. Um, and some of them you've already talked about. So the first one is that the needs of the child should be at the centre of policy making. Policymakers have not demonstrated the case that forcing all state-funded schools in England into academy status will be beneficial for pupils. Major structural changes should take place only when their benefit for those being educated can be shown conclusively. And I think that that's, mm. yeah, I think that anybody who's listened and paid attention to this conversation, the evidence that the, the amount of disruption, the amount of change that's been brought in for essentially net no gain doesn't seem to be any worse, doesn't seem to be any better. 
but you know that was a lot of money and time and expenditure um on something that is of questionable value for like you say in terms of outcomes for young people the second one is um in the absence of good evidence showing why it should be dispensed with the importance of a locally based democratic input should be stressed for all state funded schools the third one is that there should be maximum transparency at uh, transparency at all levels of decision making over the future of schools and the last one is serious questions should be asked about giving academy trusts greater autonomy over admissions over finance and purchasing and over the nature of their own governance structures yeah. um, and the ways in which that serves or doesn't serve the public interest yeah yeah that seems like a pretty healthy a healthy set of ideas well, thank so you. To... <laughs> i think i wrote them a few years ago that was something I, yeah um um, the last one was quite interesting because I haven't really touched on that, but yeah, the, the, the fact that, that yes, academy trusts are given freedom in terms of setting up, they're setting up how their governance operations should 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 run. Um, again, I think you know why are we starting off with freedom for the you know at the trust level? You know, surely we should be thinking about. Um, starting with the starting with the with, with the end user starting with the people that it's meant to be helping so you know uh, maybe we should have a structure which guarantees certain rights to to parents to pupils uh you know to staff in terms of input uh, in, into the whole decision making process that's 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 how i would start it anyway okay so um do you have any final requests uh for our listeners <laughs> I don't know, really. Um, well, I, mean, I, I could I could suggest one, which would be to uh, to subscribe well, to I... ed Education Uncovered. I, I wonder whether like it's an interesting model. Mm. So, you, so you have this subscription based yeah. website where you, where you um, publish yeah. all of this work. I'm, I'm interested to just to find out a little bit about you, know, like why you set that oh, okay. up, rather than sort of you know like being an education correspondent. For, yeah. So I know that you've you've published for many other yeah. uh, outlets as well. So. Yeah, I was. Um, so I worked for the Times Educational Supplement for about eight years um, after local journalism, then Times Ed, and then I went freelance in 2009. And one of the things I, I started doing when I was freelance was uh, writing the, um, the, the Guardian's education diary every couple of weeks. Um, started off as sort of just more or less a sort of news in brief column almost, but I found that a lot of people were coming, sending sort of tips my way about local goings on that they thought needed a bit of scrutiny, it seemed a bit questionable. So I wrote, uh, yeah, I wrote that for five years. Um, and actually when that was happening, I was kind of thinking, I was just kept on getting more and more tip offs really. And, and um, so I thought even when I was writing that column that, that there was sort of scope to do more. And that was the original thought really behind the website. I just, I just felt that um, there were so many stories out there that I thought needed to be sort of exposed and, and, and told um, um, that maybe weren't, you know, for whatever reason, weren't getting sort of national coverage. Um, and, and actually, when you sort of put them together, they really also started to tell a story about some of the problems and the weaknesses of what was being put forward as by the politicians as kind of like this inevitable, amazing policy. And actually, there were huge problems with it. So I just kind of just wanted to, to, to try and give a voice to that. I don't, I haven't been writing the Guardian column since 2018, I think, but the, the, the website's been going since 2017. And um, yeah, I mean, I've said, uh, um, just been a constant stream of 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 information really and um yeah so that's the main reason there just seem to be enough people out there that are 
interested in that and, and, and want to uh, you know want to subscribe so i just need to keep keep, keep coming forward and, and um you know um yeah it's, it's interesting how you how you fund these things as a journalist but um but you know um lots of different models out there advertising funding or paywalls but this is this is the one that works for me at the moment so yeah it's great well like i say i really recommend that uh that people sign up there's, there's lots of fascinating stuff in there and like you say that there's the the you know there's like a meta narrative that emerges from all of these individual stories did i see somewhere that you're working on a book at the moment um, yeah, I have been working with two other academic. Uh, sorry, I'm not an academic. Two two academics, um, uh, Viv Ellis, who's now in 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 Melbourne, and Lauren Gatti, who's is in the States. Um, just looking at teacher education uh, policy development, I suppose. Um, looking at yeah, that I'm obviously been concentrating on England, but they've also looked at America and Australia, and. Um, just trying to yeah to look at look at what's been going on on that front it's um it's obviously yeah and but i'm not a teacher education specialist but the policy making obviously ties up to you know so much of the other things that have been going on in england so it's it's been really interesting to to get involved with that i think it's coming out next year Okay, great. Well, thank you. So we'll keep an eye out for that. I recommend to people to uh, to get their hands on a copy of Education by Numbers. Like you say, it's a little while since they've published that now, but it remains as relevant as ever. I think it's a really important book. Um, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me and also for all of this sterling work that you've been doing rummaging around <laughs> in this in this undergrowth, unearthing things and uh, and sharing them with us all. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. No problem. Thank you. Time is a measure of Show.